effective trademarking and application for patents because that was their secret source and they just were doing that as and they built that up over years that was their unique capability and I would argue that there are many companies out there that feel or have a sense of or position that they've got IP have they perfected it? Have they patented it? Have they gone into market to determine if somebody else has, has that patent or that particular methodology? And that's the key to having an, a greater um, success in, in something. One off. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, Christian D. Evans. And guys, we have a very very special guest on. Now, many of you guys are probably very familiar with the YPO organization. You have to be, you know, running at a very high level business in order to even be accepted. There goes through a whole bunch of application. Well, the reason why I share this is because this individual that we have on used to actually be the COO at YPO. Now, he is currently the CEO of Mutual Capital Alliance, a 29-year-old firm in the financial service industry. MCA quietly helps privately companies create shareholder value and liquidity through its advisory and proprietary exit concierge services, which is what we're going to be diving into. Many of you guys are running at seven figures, mid-seven figures. You guys are looking to scale eight and nine, maybe looking for an exit at some point. Well, you may want to listen to this guy because he's able to unpack what you should be looking for the red flags and the green flags he's a seasoned international business executive he contributes 30 years of experience to entrepreneurs founders and senior executive teams his experience encompasses professional executive management growth strategies exit strategies acquisitions and finances he's the immediate past global president and ceo of ypo he has managed a family office founded two peer-to-peer -peer membership communities and led an award-winning global team of ceo coaches please welcome my next guest the one and only Sean McGinnis. How you doing today, Sean? Doing great, Christian. Uh, hello to you and your audience. Man, I am looking forward to this conversation. And, you know, when I was thinking, where do I start with this? Because there's so many different ways that we could go down this. But one of the biggest things I really want to emphasize a little bit is you've had uh, across the whole spectrum of people that you've worked with, CEOs, founders, and so forth. Yeah. And I want to ask you, Sean, before we dive in all that good stuff, okay, what is the yes. driving force? What's the thing for you, the passion that keeps you moving? Because at this point, you've done everything. You've been able to do incredible stuff. You've got incredible results in your life. But there's something that is a seed of this passion, this desire. Where does that come from, Sean? I think it's a combination of things. I think it's for me, having seen, having been an entrepreneur myself, having had a struggle and battle and find money to pay payroll, started several different businesses, learned about the capacity of myself and then watching other people and their capacity for greatness and for extraordinary results. Every single person I've discovered, and I've lived this myself, has way more capacity to achieve great things than they think they do. Those of us that are entrepreneurs, those of us that are in difficult roles where we, you know, some of us have to drag ourselves awake in the morning. Many of us go through those experiences and come out the other side and realize just what a privilege it is and really a benefit, I think, Christian, to having those experiences. Because for me, it's given me sort of a, 
an unbridled sense of what I can accomplish. And I'm, I'm at the, people would argue, I'm in my late 50s. A lot of people are slowing down. I just feel that I'm getting going. I just feel that there's so much more to accomplish on behalf of myself, my shareholders. I've been exposed to, through EO and YPO in my volunteer capacity, as well as, as being privileged to run YPO, thousands of successful CEOs, women and men, who literally you know, have pioneered industries, who've done remarkable things. And the one constant that I have seen is the sort of what I call an insatiable curiosity. Curiosity to grow and learn, curiosity to see how far they can push themselves, curiosity to see how they can you know, go through this mystical, amazing world life that we live. So that, that for me, I, I think stands out. Sean, I, and you mentioned something here, and I want to ask you this because I'm a big believer in mentorship. But also, I, yeah. I'm always intrigued where sometimes, and I've, I've talked to some CEOs and founders this way, it's almost like they have to go against the grain of their mentors, of some individuals that you know they really highly respect, but they have to follow their intuition. And sometimes that's almost counterintuitive, but sometimes they're so glad that they did follow their intuition, right? And I'm not saying like, don't ever listen to your mentors. I, I'm, I'm not saying that, but I do understand that there is that intuition sometimes internally that you, you, you hear the voice and you have to follow through. So Sean, was that ever an experience in your life where you were like, okay, you had certain people that you valued their opinion and they fed mm -hmm. into you and you're like, you know what? I agree. I understand, but I'm going to go with my intuition and I'm going to go down this path. And it, it was actually fruitful. I have had those experiences and I have had situations where I've gone against advice, seasoned advice, wise advice because of intuition. In many instances, it worked. In some instances, it didn't work. I think the overarching lesson for me is take the perspective of people that have been there and done that, who have a defined expertise. Like if I'm going, if I'm going to the dentist, I'm not going to go to somebody that hasn't been through dental school and hasn't got a practice and hasn't got capability and competence in that area. If I sell my home, I'm going to go and find the best real estate agent and broker possible. If I'm going to invest in a, in a new area or a new innovative um, business, I'm going to try and get as much good advice as possible. But ultimately, yes, I'm going to be the decision maker. I'm going to make the choices that define the direction that I want to go in. I had a situation as a young person where I had sold my business, not all of it, two thirds of the company to a publicly traded business. I never worked within a publicly traded environment before. And there was a whole lot of compliance that I had to go through on a monthly basis. All of my financials were transparent. And having run a private business prior to selling into a public business, I didn't have those constraints. And so I lost it for four years. And then I decided this is just too much hassle. Not that I was doing anything wrong. It was just, there was a, so much more work surrounding putting compliance uh, aspects together that I wasn't trained for. I wasn't particularly skillful at. And I made the decision to go to the owners of the business and and purchase my shares, the shares that I'd sold them back, which I managed to do successfully. But that was a very good lesson to me. I had been given advice to go in a direction. My gut actually told me, 
maybe it was too early to sell. I still retained a third, which was a valuable thing, and it enabled me to borrow money to buy back the, the two thirds. And a couple of things stood out for me there, Christian. One, don't ignore your gut. Two, take the advice, but take it from the best possible people that are experts in that area to give you the opportunity to make, I would say, well-judged decisions. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So it's like go with your gut, but also have the right team around you to keep you in those right boundaries or the right systems. And the reason why I want to bring this up a little bit, Sean, is because it, it kind of gravitates and loops right back into the, the you know, M&A, right? You know, looking to exit, yes. having that conversation, having that dialogue, because I think a lot of our, uh, our, our listeners, they're either looking at an exit within four or five years, right? They're anticipating that, uh, yep. or they're, they're not anticipating it. Maybe it's just an, an option on the, and they're like, oh, maybe I'll entertain this. And there's a lot that goes into it. And, um, and then there's also some that um, don't want to exit. And there might be more of like, you know, more of a legacy business. So right. my question, Sean, is I want to ask when you've, you work with so many all along the yeah. whole spectrum, what are some top line things that you're noticing a lot of business owners are not prepared when they're going down that exit path? The number one is that really are your financials, are your past three to five year track record really tight in good shape? Can you, can you evidence to a potential buyer or to a consultant or an investment banker that you've really run a very tight business. When a buyer comes along, and you may even be transferring the business to a family member, or you may do an ESOP where you're selling it to your employees. The tighter, the more controlled, the higher quality of your financial management of the business, the better shape you're going to be in should you make that decision. And when I say the finances, it's everything from your P&L, your controls, your purchasing, all of the processes that a buyer would look at and say, I'm comfortable, whether it's banking, whether it's uh, cyber, all of those areas relative to the financial health of your business, you would be shocked at how many businesses really don't have a well-oiled way of defining the quality of their earnings whenever we go into an exit. Our role is really, and we're pioneering what we call exit process management. We've seen so many individuals get involved in, in an exit where they have a lack of planning. So the finances, not that their financials are in poor shape, they're making money, they have a good EBITDA, but they have potentially a junior CPA running things. They haven't had a good quality of earnings report. They haven't had audited financials. A lot of private business owners say to me, Sean, why should I have three years audited financials? And I say, because you may sell to a strategic or you may sell to a private equity firm. And in order to get a premium on your valuation, time and time again, the higher quality and verified and audited the statements, the easier it is for them to go to market and sell you at a premium. Very, very important. Then there's the sales function, the second and most you know, second most important in, in my view is how consistent and sustain, sustainable, measurable is your sales process? Do you have playbooks? Do you have, you know, if you're in the professional services business, 
do you have multiple clients? You're not just have all your eggs in one basket. Is your sales team incented, supported, consistent, and can you prove you know, a consistent growth in your sales trajectory? The tighter that is, the easier it is for somebody to say coming in, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I don't have to hire new talent in. The risk that I'm taking with both the financials and the sales process well-defined, I'm happy to take that risk. And then you obviously layer in your marketing, you layer in your product, depending dependent on the business, quality of plant and equipment. We're selling several manufacturing businesses. What is the maintenance cycle like of, and, the, and the quality of your plant and equipment? If you're ISO certified, what gaps existed in your most recent ISO certification audit? All of those small things, Christian, add up to the ease of selling your business. And selling a business is not, is not easy. It's very painful, particularly if you're an owner-operator that never sold a business before. I had a friend of, of mine, a YPO, come to me three years ago and asked for my assistance in helping him sell his business. Very successful business, 30-year company, 31-year-old business really profitable, but he had had a failed sale five years before to a major strategic, one of the top four companies in the world in his space, and he didn't want to go through that experience again. And so he came to me and said, could you help me run the process? I don't want to be distracted like I was the last time from running my business. One of the single most important failures that we see is that the senior leadership team and the owner get distracted by the sales process. They're dragged into meetings by the investment banking firm. They have to scramble to find a quality of earnings accounting firm or their accounting firm is not at the level that they need to get a high best price for their business. So all of those nuances require planning. They require somebody who's been there and done that. My partner, partner and I have been CEOs of you know, variety of businesses over our careers. So there isn't much that we haven't seen. And there's also the uniqueness of each business. Each and every single company has its unique idiosyncrasies. They have their specialities and they need to be looked at in a very nuanced way in order to present the best possible view of the business in a realistic, objective, quantifiable way that enables them to sell successfully. 50% and possibly more of companies that go to market don't sell at the potential value because they have the wrong people on the bus or they try to do it themselves. And there's a way for them to interrupt that, um, that negativity. That's so incredible. And I love what you're saying here on, on several points. One is you're mentioning where as the CEO, as the founder, when they're looking to exit and having all that conversation, all that dialogue and whatever, right? Who, with, with the buyer, with the individual, the M&A individual that's, you know, helping, you know, facilitate that. There's a lot of dilution of your attention, your focus from actually keeping the business on track and scaling that. 
Um, yeah. and, and that's, that's a, a huge point. And then secondly, also, I love what you said in regards to those, you know, it's like, it's like the cherries on top, but that's how you get the premium of your business on the, on the, on the exit, on the multiple, on the back end. It's like, like you were just talking about, do you have those certification with those equipment? Hey, what about your team? What about those audits, right? Yes. There's the baseline of things of what naturally a buyer is going to look like. Hey, let me get to your four or five years of financials, but Hey, four or five audited financials. Oh, wow. That's just sweetens the pot. Like they've already been sweetens established. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of a lot of sellers, it's their life work. They've developed phenomenal people. There are extraordinary talent within the organization. They want those people to be looked after post-sale, post the transaction. What is that going to look like? So in the planning and preparation and the execution, it's making sure that the buyer that ends up buying the business is going to honor the commitments that the seller has. There's a lot of emotion. Christian involved in selling a business. In fact, I get um, cold shivers at times because I've been through several circumstances where the the buyer has misrepresented what they're going to do with the team. And it could be as simple as we have an outstanding HR uh, compensation, uh, rewards package, great insurance. The buyer doesn't really care too much about that. They find that out at the end of the day. They decide not to transact. They miss out on a life-changing wealth event. And I've seen this, and I've been very proud of some people just sticking to their guns. Now, subsequently, in the example that I'm thinking of, they had a successful sale, but they had to really go to bat for their people. They were going to go off into the sunset, you know, spend their life, you know, giving money away and, and doing great things and having an impact post the sale of their business. But those people that stayed behind need to be looked after. And in many cases, particularly if you're selling to private equity, um, you know, who, who may only have a five-year hold period for the business that they're buying, part of the transaction is to make sure that in the contracting, particularly if you have key employees that are vital to the success of your business, who have very important client relationships, who are integral to the success of both the sale and the continuation of the business, those individuals need to be looked after. So think of the process. The initial phase, there's a discovery phase where we go in, we get to understand the owner, their key team. There may be family members involved. There may be silent shareholders. We set goals with those owners in terms of what sort of pricing parameters. And you only really know what a business is worth is when the investment bank the accounting firm has done their quality of earnings and there's a valuation that's been provided. Then you can go, then you go out to market and test it. And it's not just going in some instances, an investment bank will say to you, we've got four or five very strategic people. They're the only ones that are going to buy your business. Well, has that assumption been tested? That may not be true. It may be accurate for some businesses. And then are you maintaining confidentiality? Because if you're selling to a strategic, say I'm selling to the, the big the big 800-pound gorilla in my space. You know, I'm in managed services or I'm in cybersecurity or I've got a business that's done really, really well by taking market share from the 800-pound from the gorilla, but they're the buyer of my business. If confidentiality and very, very, very specific, careful go-to-market without disclosing who they are is not in place, you run the risk of your competitor finding out what's unique about you. 
Who's going to make sure that that happens, that you're protected? And that's why having a quarterback or a general contractor, if you use the analogy of somebody building a house who's literally managing every vendor, making sure that the investment bank is talking to the accountant, is talking to the law firm. Who at the law firm is working on your transaction? Is it a junior attorney or is it the senior partner that's seen multiples of these things? I had breakfast on Saturday with an attorney that I admire tremendously, who's a specialist in technology contracting work. And it was fascinating conversation. His name's Todd. And Todd said to me, I'm at a stage in my career now where I feel so comfortable sitting down with my clients because I have seen so much. I've negotiated and, and written contracts for the last 25 years. There is very little that I have not seen. So when I sit down, I can be very strategic. I can be very complimentary. I can be additive to the process without having to go back to the rule book and open up a playbook and pretend to know what I'm saying. You know, it's different. So quality of team, vital. Managing the process so that you actually don't spend 24 months in a sales cycle, but that you hopefully can get the transaction done with quality, with a high price, hopefully higher than you would have got earlier within seven months, is a much more favorable outcome than starting from scratch and going, oh my gosh, where do I go? Trying to do it yourself or not being aware of the traps that exist when you're going out to an investment bank or a law firm that tells you, hey, we can do this well, but they may not have the right team in place too. So hopefully you know, that gives you an idea, but there's a lot to it. I don't want to scare away people thinking about selling their company because the greatest thing from a lifetime's worth of work is when you're able to, in a very significant fashion, create you know, generational wealth. That is, that's what you've been working for. And it's not just financial wealth. It's also the ability to do things from an impact standpoint from a give back standpoint, I look at that holistically as the entire wealth package that you do. Even tax planning is not really a consideration of a seller when they start the process. How's their business structured legally? Do they have a trust? Who's going to be the beneficiary of you know the proceeds post sale? All that needs to be addressed in the initial discovery and planning phase. And that's where we think we play a phenomenal role. And we're pioneering. You know, a lot of investment banks have come to us and saying, hey, you're doing our job. On, on the contrary, we're very good at working with investment banks. They're critical. Now, there are good banks, there are better banks, and then there are really outstanding investment banks. And we want to work with the outstanding investment banks. We want to work with law firms that will fix their fees and not gouge the seller. And the seller's not used to operating that way. We are. And that's the passion that my partner, Rick Sapio, and I have. You asked me at the very start, it's why are you doing this now? Well, I've seen a lot of failed transactions. I've seen a lot of successful transactions. And I'm at a point in my career, as is Rick, funny enough, we're both the same age. We've both had a very successful career, careers. And we want to help individuals be as successful as they can be in the sales process that's where we get our enjoyment. And we don't, we're not going to do hundreds of transactions a year. 
We may do 15, 20 transactions a year, but we're going to pay attention to them as if they're our transactions. And that goes for our payment process too, by the way. We get compensated on the savings that we generate from negotiating with the vendors that typically are non-negotiated contracts with those vendors. So it's a very interesting alignment with the owner's um, interests, and, and it seems to be working fairly well. So this is so interesting, and I appreciate getting micro with this because what I find, yeah. um, and I want to ask you a little bit contextual because each, you know, I think we can all acknowledge that, you know, we hear this and it's like you got to get your financials, you got to get your, your equipment, you got to get all these pillars, right, and, and these yeah. verticals in your business correct. But I think also, you know, for those that are listening, some that have that, like if it's on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the highest on each one of the pillars, you know, they're at, they're at an eight or 10, right? Oh, cool, yes. wonderful. But there's yes. also some that are probably listening. They're like, okay, well, I, I probably have a B plus team. And maybe if I want to increase a multiple, do I need to maybe, you know, get more talent acquisition and fire a few people or maybe restructure the organization? Plus, we also notice maybe my margins aren't the best. Maybe there's certain things that I could streamline it, right? So I'm looking at, Sean, when you're having these conversations, you know, you mentioned where, okay, you look at these pillars, you look at these verticals, and you yeah. kind of rate them and say, okay, well, you got a good sales system, but there's a few things we want to do to make sure we got that streamlined so that we know on the back end, the multiple's really really big. Uh, and like you mentioned, just those things that you're noticing or like, Hey, you got amazing equipment, you got amazing assets, but maybe they're not certified X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Right. So maybe we need to get certified equipment or et cetera, et cetera. That helps, you know, again, on the back end. And so just having it in a contextual um, conversation, because at the end of the day, each one of those improvements will be yes. capital heavy on the front end, but then on the back end will be actually very, very valuable for the, for the buyer themselves. So just help us understand how you guys look at that, if you could. You're 100% correct. We start out with a very extensive questionnaire. We start out with an, what we call an exit success index, which is, it's 20 questions, but it gets you to rate out of 10 where you think you sit in terms of the quality of the various areas of your business. So very simple. Once you've completed that, and you may give yourself, as you've just said, 8 out of 10, 7 out of 10. Once we've identified those gaps, we go through a next level of due diligence. In advance of hiring, on your behalf, the attorneys or the investment bankers. Because if we see something that's an inherent gap, and we know the market's not going to respond well to that, we'd advise you, take 3 or 4 months, 5 months, 6 months, Concentrate on scaling. Could be that the market, like right now, the market is soft. There are a lot of businesses that were A-plus businesses eight months ago, very attractive for a buyer. They're a B or B-plus today, through no fault of their own. But a buyer's going to look at that and they're going to go, oh, you know, I want to wait until you're an A. Or I'm going to I'm going to go for the kill. There's blood in the water and this is my opportunity to pick up a great business at a discount, don't fall for that trap. The key that we, that we say, particularly to businesses that are not quite ready to sell, is get yourself, now you know where the gaps are, take the time, unless you're in a fire sale situation or you're in a forced sale situation, that's not what we specialize in. Our speciality is being direct with you. And by the way, we have tremendous resources and a network that we've built over 30 years in business. 
And those resources come to play in these instances because I could say you need a CEO coach to help you and your executive team for the next 12 months. And here's five or 10 individuals that specialize in your industry that can help you put the basics in place that can help you maybe fine tune the caliber of people. Maybe there's a virtual CFO that you need to bring in to really work in tandem with your controller to, to really upgrade um, your financials. Maybe you need a chief growth officer that doesn't exist in your business and you need to spend half a million dollars for the next 12 months to get them onboarded, to get them cranking, to make sure that everything is aligned and your profitability is not going to be as good, but your sales growth will tell the story. Bite the bullet, make that happen, and then go to market. So there are those realistic conversations we have. We turn down business if it's not in the interests of the seller to sell at this stage. And I, I think that's unique. A lot of people, particularly in professional services, will take on a client because they're getting you know, they're getting fees, you know, they're, you know, they're, they, they play the game. Our game is we've been where you are. If you're not ready, here's several things that you can do to get ready. And on a complimentary basis, we'll put you in touch with some people. Hopefully they'll come back to us and we'll stay in touch a year from now or 18 months from now when they're ready. And we'll, you know, we'll have the conversation again. But as a business owner, Going back to something you said very, very eloquently is you're running hard, you're driving your business, you're driving, you've, you've built it, there's a lot of intuition involved. There are some basic fundamentals that you may not be aware of that will impede a successful sale. It behooves you from time to time to do an analysis, spend 30, 40, 10, 15,000 dollars, have a consultant come in. And just say, where are you today? Take you through an investigative process that says in each area of my business, am I a match with my number one competitor? Can I go to market with something that's unique? I'll give you a factual for instance. We had a client who was basically their model was going into big box stores, overlaying 300 financial metrics against the operations of those big box stores and finding savings. So was my inventory sitting for X period time on the shelves where if I reduced that, my profitability would be less. Was my, were my supply chain costs well handled? 300 different metrics and they had applied this benchmark as part of their normal course of business. When we went in to do the due diligence and we asked about intellectual property, what's different from you to say a top five consulting firm out in the market. And they said, well, our clients tell us that we have the most sophisticated benchmarking process to uncover savings in the industry. And we said, well, why are you not telling the market this? Why aren't you leading with that benchmark? Have you packaged it? Have you productized that? And so, in the process of selling their business, they were able to productize, do some very, very quick and effective trademarking and application for patents because that was their secret source. And they just were doing that as, and they built that up over years. That 
was their unique capability. And I would argue that there are many companies out there that feel or have a sense of or position that they've got IP. Have they perfected it? Have they patented it? Have they gone into market to determine if somebody else has, has that patent or that particular methodology? And that's the key to having an, a greater um, success in, in something. One of, by the way, one of, of many. But that's an example of where doing a little homework on yourself, making sure that, you know, it's realistic and that you're not uh, drinking your own Kool-Aid, so to speak. But those are examples that have been verifiably significant in altering the final purchase price of a business. Um, and it helps to, to have a look at your business on a regular basis and have outsiders who have an, er, an industry or an area of expertise help you with that process. So this is interesting. And I want to talk a little bit about like when you're at the negotiating table and the buy and the seller. Okay. Because yeah. what I love about this, it is that, that story, you know, and what I mean by this is like, what is the buyer really looking for? Because maybe you need all those, those pillars, which you definitely still need, but there's also, how are you going to take all this data and then develop a story around it to hit the buyer's needs? What are they looking yeah. for? And what I mean by this, and I think is a really good example. The reason why I bring this up is because it's very well known. Facebook, when it was acquiring Instagram, they could literally duplicate everything Instagram did. However, though, they saw that because they already had the user base established. So they really weren't That's buying right. the technology. It was really because they could duplicate that. They were buying the user base already. So obviously that was right. beneficial. So it's really the, the perception of when they were, you know, Instagram was offering it. They said, hey, this is what we can bring to the table. We got all these monthly users, et cetera, et cetera, instead of, you know, competing against this Facebook mammoth. So anyways, I think that's a really good, um, you know, analogy to start with in the same thing when you're at the at the negotiating table and say okay hey what are you having those questions with the buyer what are they looking for maybe they're looking for hey the reason why they want to acquire us is because they they're looking at all of our clients and we have their potential clients and so they can scale through that way or maybe that we already have a, established systems and sops and stuff like that and that's the reason why so just really saying okay what are their needs and then a structuring the offer in a way and then does that help maximize the valuation i'm just curious it absolutely does. And some sales are for eyeballs or for client concentration in a certain sector. And, you know, there are acquisitions where there are rationalizations at the back office. You may have an acquirer who has an, an existing high performing financial team or sales team and, and somebody's going to be a casualty in the mix. Those are the unfortunate realities of some sales. And each sale is unique. If you talk about the buyer funnel, this is where a great investment banking firm is vital to the success of a sale, in my view, because the great investment banker with a speciality in the area of, of, the, of the business that's being sold has established relationships with buyers. They know which buyers are going to be predators. They know which buyers have deep pockets. They know which buyers you know, are going to be great to work with. They know all of this. They don't necessarily tell the seller all this in advance. That's our job too, to make sure that there's open. I said earlier, selling is an emotional uh, situation. If you can unemotionally and objectively present a, a very, very good buyer pool, and by the way, some buyers may be external to the United States. 
They may be sitting in Dubai, or they may be sitting in Africa, or they may be sitting in Singapore. You've really got to go back to what are the goals? What is the buyer pool? What types of businesses are they doing? Are they going to sell in three years? Are they legacy? Family offices have become a big growth area in the last decade. And there are some outstanding family offices, individuals that are in it for the long term and who acquire a business not to sell it in five years, but because it fits their niche, the earnings fit a profile as an alternative investment for the family, as opposed to investing in the S&P or stocks or hedge funds. And they, they enjoy the, um, the ability to sit on a board, add the experience and help a company grow. So when an investment bank presents the buyer pool, think of it as a funnel, a sales funnel. You start out by representing you. They tell you in your, in your confidential offering memorandum or information memorandum, what's good about you, what they're seeing. We ask every investment bank a, to bring a minimum of 200 company potential buyers at the top of the funnel. Now, you may only get eight LOIs. You may get four letters of interest before you get to your one. But if they're not starting broad, I would have a question to say, are they truly representing my interests? Right? And this is where we become unemotional and we become objective. And when, when we're managing the process, we're holding everybody accountable to the goal. Now, it's not perfect. I say that and it sounds great. Sean, wow, you know, if you could do all this, you could walk on water. No. We understand the difficulties. We understand the nuances of personalities. We've represented uh, customers where the seller, you don't want the seller in the room with a buyer because they'll kill the deal. They're opinionated. They're hard-headed. They think their business is the best in the business. They didn't bother to read the, the comps and they didn't bother to see what the market would bear. We have to deal with all of that and not every deal is going to be successful. And this is where it's painful. There's some great research and you know, there's, there's just your, your audience can Google failed exits, successful exits. There are thousands of articles that have been written about this, but unless you've gone through it and unless you can sit with somebody and say, chill, hold your jets, we understand where this is going. You don't need to take the first offer that comes around. You don't need to get yourself all bent out of shape. If the market changes, we've done the work. We've done the homework. When sales come back, when profitability comes back, we'll have another kick at the can. Those are the tough conversations that a lot of buyers don't have with a qualified consulting partner because people are averse to sharing bad news in many instances. Those are some of the nuances, Christian. Sean, you bring up some really great, great points, and it's really good for my audience and my listeners to hear this because you're starting with, like you mentioned, a funnel, right? That top line. You have a huge Rolodex of individuals that may or may not be interested in your business. And then obviously the next stage is people that maybe put an LOI, right? Letter of intent on yeah. that and say, okay, you know what? Maybe. And then out of that, then there's only a few that actually take it to the negotiating table. But then at that point, that's where the seller is able to say, well, I like this personality. I like this individual. I like what they're offering. I want to kind of dive into the this a little bit because – I, I've talked to some people that had some incredible exits, you know, and, and some yes. that are medium sized exits and so forth. And 
Um, we always think just very baseline in, in the creativity, but it's just like buying and selling real estate and the, you know, creative financing, all sorts of fun stuff. There's all sorts of fun deals out there and definitely, you know, off, off market behind the deal a little bit uh, behind the door. Uh, Sean, yep. I'd love for you to just talk about maybe some, some, you know, really just, you know, interesting deals that you've structured. That's like, Oh, you know, I sold, you know, like you mentioned, you sold majority of your business, but also kept maybe 25% of it still. And, you know, and then you bought it back or whatever, or some individuals I've, I've heard where they buy the stock. If it's an IPO company, as it's, it's a public company, they buy, you know, they, they, they take a portion of, of equity. Uh, and then, you know, the rest is cash and all sorts of different fund structures. So I love for you to just talk on that a little bit, because I do think yeah, it's just absolutely. the lack of creativity of it. I mean, you know, let's take the professional services industry. In professional services, it's usually a partnership structure where there may have been a founder who has majority of the interest, but as the business grows, as it becomes more complex, other partners come into play, they get a piece of the action. And then the founding partner, usually it's age, or maybe they've just lost interest or horsepower, or they haven't maintained their, uh, their uniqueness and their skill set. And so They've aged out, not in terms of, of physical age, but in terms of where the market has gone. Who do they sell to? Well, they sell to their partners. But how do they sell to their partners on a, on a basis that recognizes the 25, 30 years? They've spent, spent blood, sweat, and tears putting into the business and creating the opportunity for those partners to buy in. So those are very nuanced sales. And we've represented some individuals that have the majority share and in, in some instances have 30 or 40%, which is significant share, selling to the other partners. You still have to do the homework, the due diligence, establish market value, and then those contracts are typically earn out contracts because those businesses have to generate cash in order to pay for the stock of the individual. Unless they bring an outsider in, which we've seen too, but that outsider has to fit very well culturally, professionally, and they have to have um, the confidence of the partners, you know, that they're that they're going to be working with. Otherwise, those companies can evaporate and they can, um, you know, they can collapse. So that's one that's one example of a different kind of sale given where you given where you are. Family. This is a big one. There are YPO, a third of YPO members are second, third, fourth generation family businesses. Now you've got the father or the mother who've started the business, second, third generation cousins, maybe a direct son are involved in the business. There may be some family members that aren't involved in the business, but because of the trust structures, and the inheritance rules that the patriarchs have, and matriarchs have put in place, there's a defined way to exit. A lot of them don't have that definition in place. So we helped a, a family business where there was just a tremendous amount of animosity between the operating family members, those that are in the business day in and day out, operating the company, earning a salary, providing other siblings and cousins a salary, but for doing absolutely zero, and the expectation of those individuals that are getting zero to make almost as much as the individuals that are running the family. Now that needs real communication. It needs, in many instances, objective 
non-emotional third party to set up a structure that everybody is it's explained it's fair and if, if that isn't done in the transition of family businesses if that isn't done well the drama it creates is unbelievable you can write a soap opera and many of your, your listeners are very creative think of the most creative dysfunctional family soap opera and that's what happens on a regular basis Christian so the transition in a family business instance is very tricky because you have to get alignment from anybody that has a seat on the board that has shareholder rights that has approval rights all of those things that a good family attorney can be very helpful in that structure um, in those instances getting everybody aligned and having open dialogue and conversation is vitally important and why because you may end up having five let's say there's a six person and I think one that that we we've worked on I think they had five um, three of the five were not involved in the business but were not a drain on the business they were they were part of the board they were very very good Two, the the other two were were in their um, 70s and getting everybody aligned around its time there was nobody else in the family to take over so they'd been through two generations three generations already so who do we sell to how do we structure it are we all in alignment and fortunately they all were mature enough to have the conversations to line out a way to go forward they all had a had a vote on what who potentially to sell to some more than others um, and it was a it was a fairly decent process that isn't always the case so you know those are the kinds of um, examples that you don't often think about a lot of family businesses are running towards the end of their cycle so who's going to buy a business where you've got you know a second generation but aging owner who's really done very little with the business yet that business still has the potential on a go-forward basis to be of significant benefit to the remaining members of the family those conversations are important to have and you know it's 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 a benefit of, of YPO groups like YPO and others where they have subsets within the membership where there are educational programs there are people you know who specialize in structuring family businesses and selling and advising and how you do that um, you know if your audience is interested or if you get any questions I can point you to some but that's a vital part of ensuring that those businesses are sustainable and that when it comes time to sell that you're taking the, the proper approach you know that you bring up some really good points there because I like you mentioned definitely the family structure the more individuals you have associated with that trust or into that family organization whatever the more decision makers and obviously everybody's not going to align so you have to make sure that there's a strategic method you know a method a method behind that to ensure that the the deal does go through and then as well as maximizing having that conversation that dialogue uh, I was actually having a friend of mine go ahead no I'm agreeing with you yes yeah, and I had a friend of mine, and it was interesting because he was telling me where his father, he built basically a, a billion-dollar manufacturing business. And both of their sons, which is a, the, the guy I was talking to, they both went to college. They came back, and they basically took the, the business to $5 billion. 
And I asked, you know, and, and we were all just talking and whatever. And I was like, well, how'd you guys do that? And he's like, well, my dad basically built a $5 billion business, but he didn't know how to do that. You know, he didn't know how to structure, streamline, et cetera. Um, and I, you know, I, I, the reason why I brought, brought that up is just because just like you mentioned, there are certain things that people can do. And then that's why YPO is able to have that, you know, structure, that, that information, that technology, that, that community as well. So it's really cool that, that organization, what you guys have been able to establish. I want to ask, um, when, when you're, when you're having these conversations, this dialogue, um, with, with the buyer and the seller, right? Yeah. So like, for example, I know some buyers who they're looking right now in this market, they're looking for good deals, right? And sellers, right. like you just mentioned, you know, eight months, nine months, that could have been an A plus business. It was running a beautiful thing. It was, you know, cranking, it was scaling, rock and rolling. And then now it might be B plus, maybe B minus, maybe B, whatever it may be. And not, not to, to any of their fault. It's just the way the market runs. Yeah. But also there are some sellers. Do you, you know, in these circumstances, would you say, Hey, you know what? Put your head down and, and stay founder and don't, don't exit with a small multiple or just say, you know what? Um, that's where a lot of these, these, these buyers are licking their lips and saying, I know a lot of these are a plus and we can come in and buy them at B and we can scale these and we can, you know, you know, incredible rate of return. That's what they're looking at. And, yeah. you know, strategically. So, you know, just having the right conversation, the right dialogue. I, I just wanted to get your, I guess, perspective or opinion on that. I, I think it's so important to start with really understanding the seller's goals. They may be at a psychological point in their lives where they've just burned out with the reality that they've got a good business. Yes, it may not be the ideal time, but I'm just done. And so if they're just done and you've exhausted the conversation and you've really helped them think through it's a trade-off in that particular example and i have many of those examples where an individual hits the 65 70 year old um uh you know age bracket has spent a lot of their their time and they want to spend time with their grandkids or they want to go traveling or they want to go and see the the national parks maybe a hundred different reasons and it's not to say, by the way, that a lot of those people just stop. They have other things that have become more important to them. So how much is enough money is a very important conversation to have with individuals. If they haven't created a financial stability and security for themselves, and they've been pouring everything back into the business, and they've hit the wall, and they just feel that they've had enough, sometimes giving them some support insight, experience, opportunity to talk to individual that can get them out of that mindset and refocus them just to stay through another 12-month cycle or 15-month cycle, that may be valuable to them. And that's where starting at the point of understanding the motivations for your sale are so critical and recognizing that there is a point in time where, you know, the value will we'll cross over. Here's the ideal point in time where I can get max value. For a number of reasons, I'm here. You may decide to sell here for the sake of a trade-off and still feel that you've had a successful sale. And that's really the art in the transaction. I was with somebody yesterday for lunch. We're in the middle of a sales transaction with them. It's a business that will trade for over $100 million. It's in the IT tech space. They do not want, this is the founder owner, and I've spent, fortunately, I've known the individual for about 10 years now and have been an ad hoc advisor for them over this period of time. Now we're in the sales transaction. 
they actually want to stay for another two years post-transaction and leave a little bit in the company. Why? They're on an upward trajectory. They're doing some really exciting things. He's an innovator. He's created some ways to do DevOps development operations, uh, testing some very unique things that he wants to see through. So whilst he's committed to an exit, and he's got a partner that's going to end up being very wealthy, while he's committed to an exit, he's still got two years worth of unfinished business, and he's going to get a tremendous psychological lift by retaining maybe 15, maybe 20 points, and the ability to turn that, maybe double that, as part of the negotiation, that still hasn't happened yet. We've, you know, we've got eight LOIs that we're, you know, that we're that we're reviewing, because that's in the art of the transaction. So it's not an apples to apples comparison. So, and he's young; he's still got a lot of game. He's already started his second business, by the way, which is run by by a president and a whole team. And he feels that in two years' time, he'll be able to come in, and then get involved in that business when it's ready to take its sort of hockey stick approach. Um, so there are different, it, it's a different strokes for different folks, I guess is a, a corny way of, of saying it, Christian. There's also another important aspect of identifying where you are in your business life cycle. A lot of companies come to us and they're at the end of their business life cycle. They may be geographically constrained. They may have tapped out their market. There may only be a strategic buyer pool that would buy them, and you said it earlier, maybe for their book of business, for their clients, it may be for some specialized IP, it may be for some you know, equipment that's unique in their industry. There may be a niche that is very that was very attractive, but that niche has become commoditized. So at that point, and that's why it's so important to get advice on a regular basis. For outsiders to say, to say, given what's happening in the market with other firms in your area, where are you on the corporate life cycle? Dr. Adizas has a wonderful corporate life cycle um, methodology where he looks at companies and his research has looked at companies and it goes through a series of steps. Now, if you're still in the go-go phase, you're the entrepreneur, you've reached a point where your own capabilities, competence, knowledge is impacting the business negatively because you haven't been able to break through the next ceiling, then what do you do? In the context of a sale, I would prior to sale, go out and find those individuals that can take the business to the next level, or at least have that in your plan when you sit down with the buyer. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what I think we need to go. I've hit my plateau. All of that could be a reality, and we see it. See, Sean, and this is why I love these conversations, and I'm so glad because it allows my audience and myself even to think unorthodox, right? We always just think the same baseline of just the same things we've heard, but I love your approach in the way other individuals, it's a matter of getting clarity, but also getting creative and saying, hey, there's a lot of different ways of structuring it. And I love what you said, where some individuals, they still have that energy, but maybe they don't want to raise some more, that maybe they don't want to dilute their shares. So what they do instead is say, hey, you know what, let's go ahead and get acquired. They've already got resources. They got tons of, you know, capital. They got tons of, you know, access, Rolodex, whatever. They get acquired. You still take a, 
uh, you know, still have some equity in that, roll over that, maybe even performance equity. Hey, once you hit these trajectory and market within your own thing, uh, I've seen so many different ways of creating this. And like you mentioned, definitely if you still got tailwind behind you and you're, you're still young and you still want to hit that up to the right trajectory and a lot of fun ways of doing this and creatively. And definitely if you do a strategic partnership, that's what I love about this stuff. And a lot of people, a lot of large companies are willing to look for those individuals. Um, and I love this conversation. You know, the other one is culture. This exact same example of this company we're advising now, culture has been the cornerstone of the success of their business. Treating people well, celebrating around the world. They, they have about 1,200 employees in a bunch of different countries. The owner was just in Mexico um, over the weekend celebrating with their Mexican team, which is about 41 people strong developers. And the, the nuances of really creating a culture where people want to be there, they're loyal, they provide high degrees of productivity. Now imagine if he went cold turkey, left and said, here you are to your own devices. What could potentially happen? You know, if there was some gates, if there was some contingent payments based on the performance of the business, if that culture eroded overnight, he's not prepared to make that happen. So those are his driving forces, which I love. You know, and then you've got the reality of, I, I work very closely with a brilliant leader in research. You should interview him if you haven't. His name is Rand Stegen. He's a leadership guru, and he teaches CEOs how to think in terms of decades as opposed to short-term, you know, very sort of tactical things. And it's very challenging for a lot of entrepreneurs to put on a decader mentality which means that you're not as attached to an outcome as you are attached to building something that will last and that will be saleable at any stage of the cycle of when you decide to sell. Isn't that interesting? And it's counterintuitive. So he spends time saying, teaching you how to release the attachment to specific outcomes and to dwell in the fear of that, the unhappiness that that creates, the uncertainty. Now, that's a difficult thing to do, and it requires practice and mastery. But I find that fascinating. And I spend a lot of time listening to him, um, learning from him and, and some of his coaches who are experts at just helping you create a different mindset. And it helps you sort of sit here and start, there's that saying, working in your business, and a lot of entrepreneurs are so expert at working in their business. I can do that better than my CFO. I used to do all the sales in the business. I'm the hero. I'm going to go back to doing that because you guys know nothing. I can tell you I've heard everything, Christian. But being able to sit above, and not above from a hierarchical standpoint, but sort of sit outside your business, the concept of working on your business. What do I need to tweak? What do I need to think about? Do I have nines and tens in all the key slots in the organization from a, a people perspective? And for a lot of your folks, I don't know how often they do uh, reviews. A lot of us do reviews, but they kind of wrote and it's done by human resources and it's done to check the box. But you as the business owner or you driving a particular division of a big corporation, are you constantly asking yourself, one, you should be asking yourself, Am I operating at an 8, 9, and 10 out of 10? And if I'm not, what do I need to do to get there? But if I have key individuals in the organization who are 
I rate a 5 out of 10 or a 4 out of a 10. What are we going to do about that now? Because if, if, if my view is, and you can check this with other people too, on a confidential basis, you know, that 360, uh, that 360 concept, have three or four other people. If you're all in the 5 to 6 or 4 to 5 to 6 range, you better get after that and get after that quickly. That individual may be able to move up. In many instances, the Peter principle applies. They've hit the wall. They can't push any further, and that's fine. There's plenty of places for them to be successful, and maybe even within the organization. So it's not negative to think that way. You're thinking on behalf of the entire organism of the organization. That's why I love capitalism. I love entrepreneurship, because it's a miracle of what individuals have created through sheer will, desire, fortitude, grit, determination. They've created industries. Look at Microsoft. Microsoft today just doubled down. They're investing billions in that chat, GPT, etc. They're backing those new, that new technology. They, they're not, the founders of Microsoft are long gone. I mean, they're still involved and Bill Gates is still involved, etc. But they pioneered this approach to say, we've invented, we've gone, we're now paying it forward. You're going to sit on, this individual that I'm, I'm talking about is going to sit on 100, 110 million. I know for a fact that he's going to incubate three to four, potentially even five additional businesses, which will impact another 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000. Remarkable. And all of the individuals through his efforts, brilliance, innovation, look at what he's had as an impact on, on families, the world, etc. So I'm a massive conscious capitalist, I would call myself. There's that there's that popular movement, conscious capitalism, because I think doing well while doing good and treating people fairly, and, and, and that is very important for me personally, and I think that sets businesses apart, but that's what's inspiring to me. So imagine how Rick and I feel when somebody comes to us and says, help me sell the business that I've built over 25 years that has impacted this community, this number of thousands of employees, we salivate at helping them do that successfully. I love it. And like you mentioned, you know, it's, it's that larger vision. It's that bigger dream of accomplishing it. And some like, uh, you know, some of our listeners are at that point where they're looking to exit or they're looking at their plateau and they say, hey, just like chat, chat, uh, chat, uh, GPT, I appreciate you bringing that up, actually. I love that strategic partner. Uh, Microsoft has the resources, the Rolodex, the, the capability, yes. and all they did, they just infused tons of capital in this. And there was just one strategic partner that could take them to the moon. And it's the same way. And also, Sean, I love what you're talking about in regards to, you know, know um you know being in a situation where you could sell this business at any moment i have i've heard so many times where people are like oh i want to sell it well your business still needs about 18 22 months of work before it's sellable right to maximize that multiple on the back end and people yeah. are like oh man they hate that feeling but it's better to do this work now and not have to sell it and say at least i can sell it because now we've got the systems and processes of working on it not working in it like you just mentioned and we've heard that quote so many times but it's so funny how many times we have to say it because people still keep doing it, right? <laughs> so, Sean, I really appreciate you being on yeah. here. Oh, yes. it's, Christian, it's been fantastic. I mean, you and I could go for hours. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity to share our passion, my passion. And just a shout out to all your, all of your listeners. It's a journey. If you're on this journey and, and you're making it happen yourself, you're not alone. 
I would encourage you highly to find a mentor or find groups like EO, YPO, Vistage, Forbes Councils, and others where you're working with like-minded people who know what it feels like to struggle and to be lonely. Don't feel that you're alone in this. Reach out. You know, part of your skill set, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here with your listeners, part of your uniqueness is that you're creators, you're doers. And what do doers do? They find other doers because we can't do it alone in the world. And I've been the beneficiary of so many people's help that I try and pay it forward. So thanks for having me, Christian. Sean, I really appreciate you being on here. And guys, his links, everything, his social media, his website, uh, all will be down in the description. So you can reach out his LinkedIn as well. So you guys can stay connected with him. He's got a lot of fun stuff. And uh, also, I'll put YPO down there so you guys can get part of that organization if you do definitely qualify for that. Uh, so I'll put that down there on the description. Sean, again, I really appreciate you being on here. And I love that you are on the forefront of doing this and the passion that, you know, kind of exudes uh, into this, into this uh, career, into your into what you're doing into these businesses entrepreneurs these founders that you know have never uh you know went down this path before and you can help them you know facilitate through that through that environment and i love what you're doing guys that is the ceo of mutual capital alliance my friend the one and only sean magnus guys that is journey with christian davis podcast until next time be uncommon if you can